pray together. Father, we're thankful that you inhabit the praises of your people, that you promise that you do that, so that when we gather together as a community of faith, Lord, we can rest assured that your presence is with us. Father, we need your presence, we need your spirit to open up our blind eyes, to awaken our dead heart, uh, to enlighten our hearts, Father. And we pray for that this morning as we look at your word, as we reflect on these psalms, uh, that you would speak to us in such a way that it changes us as we encounter the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Over the years, uh, I've had opportunity to talk with all sorts of people about faith and about what it means to, to be a person of faith, about what it means to engage in the faith. And there are a lot of people that have a very hard time with this thing that we call Christianity. For some people, they have a really hard time with the beliefs, the essence of, of what Christianity is, and they really wonder whether they can really believe the things that Christianity teaches. They can really believe the things that are in the Bible. But some people ha- reject Christianity for different reasons. And sometimes it's because they've met Christians. They've met Christians and they, f- they have a hard time with some of the, the people that they've run into and they think, yeah, Christianity is not for me because of that. For some people, it's because they've met Christians who... Uh, in their minds, seem to be rather hypocritical. Christians who say one thing and they live their lives in another way. But others have a hard time with sometimes the piety that they observe in Christians because they view this kind of piety or this pious air about Christians and they think that, that they could just never be like that. They think that their lives are too messy to be like that. You've run into Christians that are like this, right? They seem to be folks that are all about uh, the spiritual equivalent of kind of rainbows and sunshine all the time. They're, they're always happy, they're always full of joy, and everything just seems to be wonderful and perfect in their lives all the time. You look at their Facebook posts or their Twitter and you just get disgusted at how wonderful their lives are all the time. And sometimes people observe this and they, they just see that and they believe that I could never be that. So they reject the faith because of it. They look at their own lives and realize that their own own lives are very messy. They're imperfect. It's not always sunshine and rainbows. And they think that that's what it means to be a Christian. Many of you know that I have the the distinct privilege of being able to teach some courses here uh, at the university. And one uh, one of the courses I teach is Introduction to Biblical Studies, where we get to actually read and study the Bible. And many of my students come from all sorts of different walks of faith. Some are believers, some aren't. Some are from the Muslim faith, some are from the Jewish faith. They just come from all sorts of different things, and they have all sorts of preconceived notions about what Christianity is all about and actually what's in the Bible. But then they actually read the Bible. They actually go through certain sections of the Bible, and they are amazed at some of the things that they find. Very often they say to me, I didn't realize that that is in the Bible. That's amazing. And the Psalms ends up being one of those places. The Psalms, if you've ever read them before, are a collection of songs that are written by people who are in relationship with God. And more than anything, they are very raw and they are incredibly emotional. In one psalm, you'll find the psalmist saying amazing things about joy and excitement and happiness in his relationship with God. And then it's almost as if the next song, things change on a dime. And the psalmist will be expressing words of bitterness and in sometimes even hostility 
towards God. The Psalms are incredibly raw, and they're incredibly real. They, they reflect what real life is really all about. And they show us that this thing called faith that we all embrace, that this thing called faith is much more of a struggle than it is a smooth road without any bumps in it whatsoever. So what we'd like to do this Lenten season, this is the, the, the first Sunday of the Lenten season, and what we'd like to do in this Lenten season is look at a particular group of psalms that you'll find in the, in the latter half of the book. And they're called the Psalms of Ascent, or a group of psalms that are known to be traveling songs that were used by God's people in ancient times. Now, when I was about 10 years old, my dad took me on a road trip. And uh, at 10, 10 years old, I wanted to go, and he said, son, where do you want to go? And I said, I wanted to go see the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. So my dad drove me all the way up. It was a long drive, I can remember as a kid, but my dad drove me all the way up uh, to Cooperstown, New York, uh, to go visit the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, I, and I'm sure we had a great time, but I remember virtually nothing about the Baseball Hall of Fame at all. It's part of the reason why I want to go back, because I don't remember anything at all about it whatsoever. But what sticks in my head, as if, this, as if this event was yesterday, what sticks in my head is some of the times that I had with my dad in the car. I can remember one time when we were driving there uh, in this long journey where we found an oldie station in the Catskill Mountains. And the Catskill Mountains is not a whole lot of radio stations, but we found an oldie station. So we turned it up as loud as we could, and we sang oldies at the top of our lungs so I remember nothing about the Baseball Hall of Fame, but what I do remember is singing songs with my dad on the road as we traveled. You know, many people believe that these 15 psalms, Psalms 120 to 134, these psalms that we call the Psalms of Ascent, were really traveling songs that were sung by pilgrims when they were on a road trip. You know, Jerusalem, for God's people in ancient times, Jerusalem was the center of their religion, and it was the center of their worship, and it was a city that was actually placed on top of a very high hill. And the Jews would actually have to return often to the city of Jerusalem in order to worship, and they would have to ascend up the hill in order to get to Jerusalem for worship. They would have three major festivals throughout each year, the, the Festival of Pentecost, the Festival of Weeks, which we also call, uh, or no, the Festival of Weeks, which we also call Pentecost, the Festival of Passover, and the Festival of Tabernacles, three times throughout the year where the Jews would actually return to Jerusalem for this religious festival in order to worship God. And the, many believe that these psalms were psalms that were sung by those pilgrims when they were traveling to Jerusalem. As they were climbing this hill, they would sing these songs with one another as they traveled. But they are not songs that are full of joy and happiness. Some are, but some are not. Some are very gritty. Some are very raw, and they express the realities of what life is and what this walk of journey of faith really looks like. So this morning, what we want to do is look at two of those psalms, Psalm 120 and Psalm 121, and reflect really on three profound things that they say, profound and very, very simple things that they say about this thing called life and what it means to live a life of faith. And the first is that all is not right with the world. The second is that we need help to make it right. And the third is that God responds to our cries for help. 
The first song that, psalm that we're going to look at is Psalm 120 that Michelle read. Psalm 120 is, is one of those more raw psalms. It's one of those mo- more dark psalms. And in this psalm, the psalmist comes to term with our very first point, and that is that all is not right in this world. All is not right in this world. But he doesn't come to it, at least initially, in this ethereal, kind of esoteric sort of way. But he comes to it in a very practical and pragmatic way through the circumstances of his life. You know, this month, March of 2014, is important for the city of Baltimore. It's important because if you've been here long enough, you'll know this story. But if you've been here long enough, you know that this month is the 30th anniversary of one of the most tragic events that happened in Baltimore's history. And that is when our beloved cults up and packed up in Mayflower vans and trucks and moved out of Baltimore. I can see the picture that was in the newspaper and on the news all the times of outside the Baltimore Colts complex, these Mayflower trucks that were pulling away on one snowy night, stealing away in the dark and stealing away our football team. Now you would think that after 30 years in Baltimore that the city is over it. You would think that because 30 years, a new football team, a good new football team that's won two Super Bowl championships, you would think that after 30 years, this city is over what happened in March 30 years ago. But you would be wrong if you think that, because it is still a hot-button issue in this city. Baltimore Magazine did a story on it this week, and Jerry, Jerry Sandusky is quoted as saying this. He said, if you're in your 60s or your 70s, there's a part of your heart that is missing. You always feel slighted, cheated, and robbed. Now, the, the article talks about how he thinks that it has gotten better, but he, he says the edge is definitely gone. He says, I don't think people feel as compelled to drive a Mayflower truck off the road as they once were used to doing. It's an open wound still in this city. But I think the thing that makes it so hard for us, I think the thing that makes it so hard for this city is the deceit that many people believe surrounded this event, that it happened in the cover of darkness and it caught so many people by surprise. There was all sorts of lying and deceit that surrounded this event. So because of that, people in Baltimore are still really angry about the deceit. Well, Psalm 120, the psalm that we just read, is a reaction to deceit. It is a psalm that expresses bitterness and anger at, being, at feeling like they are the victim of deceit. The psalmist says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? You see, the psalmist, we don't know the circumstances, but for whatever reason, the psalmist had fallen victim to a certain deceit in his life. Someone in his life was spreading lies about him. They were trying to destroy his reputation. And as we all know, reputation can be a very fragile thing. It's something we can spend most of our lives trying to build, but can be gone in a second through the careless or lying words of someone else. One careless word, one remark of slander, and our reputations are completely dismantled. And the psalmist was surrounded by people that were out for him. They were spreading lies and deceit about him. And he was feeling incredibly victimized. Like there was nothing that he could do about it. He felt like he was a total victim. But really his struggle is beyond just a personal struggle. 
It starts with something really practical, but then it goes on to something much bigger. Because he says in verse 7, he says, I am for peace, but when they speak, but, but when I speak, they are for war. See, what the psalmist is wrestling with is he's got this personal situation where he feels like he's been the victim of injustice. But it makes him think about all the injustices that exist in our world. It makes him think about injustice in a bigger sense because he has this sense or this disconnect that the world should be one way, but the reality is the world is much different than the way that it should be. And he, he's angry about it. He's bitter about it. He's frustrated about it. And he longs for someone to come and fix it. You know, you and I feel this way all the time. We've had situations in our life where we feel victimized or we feel out of control about the circumstances that seem to be besetting us, that we are just a pawn in all these forces that seem to be playing all around us, and we get frustrated and angry and bitter about those circumstances when we suffer that. But we also get upset about the injustices that we observe in our world. We turn on the evening news and see the things that are happening in our communities, in our cities. Violence and crime that just doesn't seem to ever stop. And we get frustrated about it. We get upset. We cry out because there's injustice in our world. And we know deep down that this is not the way our world should be. But we know that it is. And it upsets us. And it frustrates us. It breaks us. And it beats us down. And we long for something to come and to make it right. But the psalmist came to a very powerful realization, and it's one that you and I need to come to as well. And that is, we need help in order to make things right. We need help in order to make things right. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not the type of person that loves to ask for help. Uh, I tend to be someone who probably waits till the last minute to ask for help often. I'm a classic overcommitter. Anybody else here a classic overcommitter? I get really uh, interested in things, and uh, I have this kind of insatiable curiosity. So then then I'll get interested in it, and I'll get involved in it, and commit myself to it, and have all these commitments that surround all around my life, and, and I just overcommit to all sorts of things. And then the pressure starts to come. All those commitments start to kind of build up, and I start feeling a little bit stressed, but I self-counsel myself, and I tell myself, well, I can handle this. If I just work a little harder, then I will accomplish all these commitments that I have in front of me. I can do this. If I just work a little harder, I could give up sleep. Who needs sleep anyway? I'll just do these things and get it done. But all of a sudden, sometimes those things just don't happen. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how little sleep I have, I get to the point where I realize I cannot manage the circumstances of my life. And I need to, at that moment, cry out for help. I have to, you see, I don't like to do that. See, my pride makes me want to think that I can handle it. It makes me want to think that I can handle the circumstances and the challenges that life throws me. I can handle the commitments that, that are on my plate But very often my pride gets me to a very dangerous place because really I should be crying out for help much earlier than I really do. Now, I don't know if you're like me in that situation, but for whatever reason, our psalmist is in a place where he has swallowed his pride. 
He's realized that the circumstances in his life are too big for him, and he needs to cry out for help. His life has gotten beyond his ability to manage it and his ability to control it. So he says this in Psalm 121. He says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord. You see, in the face of his personal injustice, in the face of the injustice that exists in our world, he recognized that he and you and I don't have the stuff it takes in order to fix the challenges that life sends our way. We don't have the stuff that we need to fix the situation we find ourselves in. And he realized that he needed help from someone else. He needed help from the outside. He needed help that could only truly come from above. See, sometimes it takes us a while to get to that place. We don't want to surrender our pride. We don't want to surrender our own thinking about our ability to handle things. And sometimes our inability to swallow our own pride gets us in all sorts of trouble. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that uh, have struggled through marriage, have had a hard time throughout their life until a point where it gets to be too much, the breaking point, and they realize that they should have swallowed their pride long ago and asked for help. Whether it's marriage, whether it's business, whatever circumstances in life it is, sometimes we have to come to the very rock bottom before we're willing to swallow our pride and to cry out for help. But this is why the psalmist opens up his next psalm, Psalm 121, with these powerful words. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He realizes the third thing I want us to see this morning, and that is that God responds to our cries for help. One of my favorite movies ever, and I've watched it probably more than any person should watch one movie, but one of my favorite movies ever is an old movie that was made probably in the late 80s or the early 90s. It's a movie called What About Bob? If you've ever seen What About Bob, it's a movie about a guy who's beset with all sorts of problems in life. He's played by Bill Murray, and if you haven't seen this movie, you should go find it. Uh, He's beset by all sorts of problems in life where Uh, emotional problems. He has a hard time worrying about germs and worrying about people. He's beset with anxieties and all sorts of issues. But his natural inclination is to latch on to every psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor that he can find because he needs help. And the movie's all about him latching on to this one counselor and just sucking this counselor dry of everything that he has. But one of the most important things that we can learn about Bob is he, is he is not afraid to ask for help because he humbly recognizes that he does not have inside of him the stuff that it takes to figure out the circumstances of his life. He needs someone from the outside, someone outside of himself to help him fix his mess. And this is the sentiment that the psalmist expresses in Psalm 121. He cries out to God for help, and God, in a beautiful way, answers him. God doesn't take his problem away, and he often doesn't take our problems away in life, but God does answer him, and he promises his presence and his protection throughout the most difficult problems and circumstances of his life. 
You know, as these people sang these songs, in biblical times, you know, when people traveled, they had all sorts of anxieties in different ways than you and I had. The people singing these songs as they traveled to Jerusalem would have to travel considerable distances and would often be in very vulnerable situations. They'd be worried about getting injured. They'd be worried about being robbed on the road. They'd be worried about dehydration and all the things that would come from traveling. And it was beset with all sorts of anxieties as they would travel. But as they sang these songs, as they walked on these roads, they would realize in the midst of all their anxieties, in the midst of all their worries, they would realize that their true help comes from the Lord. The truth would spew from their mouths as they sang these songs and they would remember that their only true help would come from the Lord. You know, my kids teach me this all the time. My kids, uh, we have, I, have a, I have a daughter who's two and a half and she's, she's a scaredy cat. She's afraid of everything, right? She's afraid of dogs. She's afraid of animals. We, we, we have to take her out of the room pretty much when we watch any sort of movie if it has any sort of monster in it because she gets very scared and she gets very nervous. But one of the things that we do with her when she gets scared is there's this kid's CD that we have, and there's a song on it. Maybe you've heard this before, but it's called God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman, right? And uh, it's this song that she has learned in her two-and-a-half-year-old brain, and whenever she gets scared about something, we remind her of the song that God is bigger than the boogeyman. You know, I used to roll my eyes when I was single about those silly songs and all that sort of stuff. But for whatever reason, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and her childlike faith believes that God really is bigger than all the things that scare us. And maybe her faith is an example to me of the very thing that the psalmist wrote about, that God is bigger than all the scary things that happen to us in our lives. He's bigger than all the scary things that happen in our city. He's bigger than all the scary things that happen in our world. And it doesn't mean that when we cry out to him that he takes all those scary things away. But what he does is he promises his presence in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our anger, and in the midst of our bitterness and frustration in life. The things that we so desperately cry out to him for, he's right in the middle of them. And the psalmist would remind their hearts of this very thing as they sang on the road this song that their help comes from the Lord. You see, these psalms are incredibly practical for us because all of us are beset with worries and anxieties. They carry us, these psalms carry us through the ups and downs of life and the the, the ups and downs of faith and what it means to live in a relationship with God. But ultimately, they're not just about pragmatics. They're not just about practically helping us through life, but they're about something bigger because they point us to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Jesus Christ. Because ultimately the gospel tells us that all is not right in the world. It tells us that because all is not right with you and I. One of the things that the gospel tells us is that you and I have been enslaved to our sin. We have, we have fallen from where God desired for us to be. And because of that, we are enslaved by our sins. And the scriptures describe us as in a state of spiritual deadness apart from God. All is not right from us, with us. But the gospel also tells us that we need help 
We need help to make it right. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn God's favor back. We stay in a spiritual state of deadness before God. There's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right before God. And that's a hard thing for us to come to terms with. Because we like to think that we can do it on our own. can't tell you how many people that I run into in life that say, I can figure out my own way to God. But what the Gospel tells us is that we can't. That we are totally unable... We don't have the ability to fix the mess that we've made out of our lives. We need God to enter in and to do the fixing. So the gospel tells us that God responds to our cries for help. The gospel tells us that by faith, when we cry out to God for our salvation, when we cry out to God to make right the mess that is our own lives, that he reaches into our lives and he brings us life where once there was only death. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, by faith, we receive life that we most desperately need. You know, Lent is the time where we reflect on uh, the, the, and prepare for the final events of Christ's life. The time in, in Christ's life where uh, he approached Jerusalem knowing that it meant his, his, his beating, knowing that it would mean his arrest, knowing that it would mean his execution. Now, Christ was a good Jew, and he was raised by Mary and Joseph uh, and would be raised from the time he was very young to participate in the religious festivals that would happen in Jerusalem. So Jesus himself, as a young child, when he would approach Jerusalem with his mother and father, would learn these very psalms of ascent. They would be songs that would be ingrained on Christ's mind every time he approached Jerusalem. And what the Gospels tell us is that at the end of his life, he approached Jerusalem one last time, knowing that as he approached that city, it would mean his arrest and his death and his execution. And one can only think as Christ ascended that hill one last time to Jerusalem that these songs stuck in his brain knowing what was about to happen to him. And knowing that pilgrims after him, for centuries after him, would only be able to say that their help comes from the Lord if he was willing to go through what he had to go through in order to accomplish our redemption. Because he ascended that hill to Jerusalem one last time to give of his life, because he did that, you and I can receive help. And you and I can see life, receive life in the places that we most desperately need it. In the face of injustice and pain in this world, know that your help only comes from the Lord. But more importantly and more profoundly, know that in the face of your brokenness and sin, know that your help and your salvation comes from the Lord who ascended that hill to Jerusalem one last time in order to give his life for you and I. And when we by faith embrace that gift, 
we discover what life is in our own lives.